Good evening, church. Welcome to Hillcrest and week number five of our journey through the New City Catechism. Tonight we'll be exploring question number nine, which I have cleverly titled Commands 1 through 3. I know, I know, I know, it's a Pulitzer Prize awaiting me after my clever sermon titles. So if you would join me in Exodus chapter 20, uh, we will read through the first three commands and seek to build upon the foundation laid in last week's um, message where we talked about the the role of the law in the life of Israel as a nation as it was handed down, the role of the law related to the person of Christ, and then the role of the law in the church. Uh, As we explore the commands, we do so uh, on the foundation of that which was laid last week. Uh, Jesus uh, fulfills the law, and then in a basic paraphrase, points us back to it for life, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Uh, and then the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. In this, Jesus says, contains the whole of the law and the prophets. And so Jesus turns us back to obedience to God's good, eternal, moral commands as a guide uh, for worship and to live God's way in God's world. And so on the basis of that, now we explore the commands and their specific requirements. And so if you have your place there in Exodus chapter 20, I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of the word. Beginning in verse 1, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not Bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. And then the third command comes in verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not Hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, As uh, we have ritualistically spoken, this is your word. Thank you, God. Uh, These are not mere utterances spoken out of habit um, or out of compulsion. Uh, But this is the cry of our hearts. This is why we're here tonight. Because we say thank you for your word. For in your word we have um, the the written revelation of yourself. Your heart and your mind. 
and the record of your creative power. And in your word, we have the written record of uh, the very likeness of God, the person of Jesus Christ, the incarnate God. And in your word, of course, we have the letters of the apostles whom you appointed uh, to teach us all the things that you commanded, as you said in the Great Commission. And so, Lord, we say thank you for your word. And by our exploration of these systematic questions and answers, may you bless the teaching of your word, the refining of our minds, and the honing of our hearts. For the sake of your gospel, uh, for the sake of our good, and for the sake of your name. And in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I like how John Lynn puts this in the commentary that you can find in the New City Catechism app. Uh, and again, if, if you didn't hear this announcement some weeks ago, there is an app that you can download for free with all these questions and answers and um, various commentary to help explain and learn from modern day and ancient teachers. Uh, but he summarizes this question nine this way. The first three commandments show how we are to live in reference to and in light of the only true and living God. The first three commandments show how we are to live in reference to and in light of the only true and living God. The Ten Commandments have often been um, broken down into what are considered the two tablets. The first four commands being the first tablet, the last six being the second tablet. The first four commands being related to, if you will, vertically, how man is to view and live in light of God, and the last six being horizontal. Second tablet being that how man is to relate to man. The New City Catechism, having condensed the Westminster Shorter Catechism and the Heidelberg Catechism um, from some 150 questions down to 52 questions, has combined the equivalent of 30 or more questions and answers down to four. Okay? Uh, the Westminster Catechism would ask, what does the first commandment say, or what is it? And then, next question, what is required? Answer. Next question, what is forbidden? Answer. So it's three separate questions for each of the Ten Commands. Um, the New City, again, condenses this, this attempt uh, to systematically teach these things. And so we are covering three commands, uh, or the equivalent of nine questions and answers in one sitting. Um, so for that, uh, we'll just work diligently um, uh, to go as deep as we can, and then thank the Lord for the rest of his word and the rest of these great resources uh, for further exploration. So question number nine asks, what does God require in the first Second and third commandments. 
And the answer comes, uh, first, that we know and trust God as the only true and living God. Second, that we avoid all idolatry and do not worship God improperly, um, which is a, a real bugaboo of mine the older I get, worshiping God improperly. And apparently, as you turn 40 and beyond, you start saying things like bugaboo. Um, and then the answer concludes, third, that we treat God's name with fear and reverence, also honoring his word and works. Man, it's a, it's a wonderful question and answer. In the Exodus account, the preface, I am the Lord your God, there in verse 2, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, establishes two foundational things. Ready? The foundation of condition and the foundation of initiation. This preface establishes the foundation of condition and the foundation of initiation. Let's talk about those two before we jump into the first command. The foundation of condition. Like Adam in the Garden of Eden, Israel was set in a covenant with God based on the condition of their perpetual obedience. It was a condition for Adam and Eve's continued peace in the garden that they obey and do not disobey. When that condition was not met, they were exported, if you will, from the garden, right? So we're talking about the foundation of condition. This is what the law requires, question seven. Okay, and then in Deuteronomy, when, when Moses is teaching these great sermons there at the end of a, a long life and a long career as their spiritual leader, he speaks to the nation of Israel and says, obey the law and be blessed, disobey God's law and be cursed. It's a condition, okay? A condition for blessing and a condition for cursing. The consequence is the conditional atmosphere of the law, which is um, a way that I like to think of it, right? A condition that we're in a conditional atmosphere, all right? This is the air we breathe. This is the ground upon which we walk. It's an atmosphere of condition. Such it was in the garden and such it was with the nation of Israel. Break it and the slavery out of which you were rescued, to it you will return. Right? I am the Lord your God who rescued you out of Egypt. Or, in the case of Adam, I am the Lord your God who rescued you out of the dust. Right? Out of slavery. Break my commands and to the dust you will return, or to the slavery you will return. See? The foundation of condition. <clears throat> the beauty of the new covenant in Jesus' blood is that he met the conditions. He met all of the conditions of the Ten Commandments, if you will, or of the law under God. 
And in his initiation of the new covenant, he set new conditions. Not there is now no longer any covenant. This is the new covenant. So, new conditions. Israel's peace was with God conditioned upon perfect, perpetual obedience. The Christian's relationship to God and Christ are conditional upon faith in Christ instead. The old conditions were perpetual and perfect obedience. The new conditions in the blood of Christ are faith. The first is a condition of merit. The second is the condition of grace. It's called the foundation of condition because everything that comes next is built upon it. No sense in talking about what's required until you understand the stakes. In Christianity, therefore... All of life in Christ, even as we are returned to his moral law, is built on the foundation of grace, not merit. This is Paul's big, to use a word, bugaboo, with the Galatians. Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Do you think that that which was begun in the Spirit, by grace, as a gift, can possibly be carried on or perfected in your flesh? This was his big bugaboo. Everything that is built after is built on the foundation. The foundation in Christ is grace, not merit. Therefore, to acknowledge God as the one true God in word and action and in the heart is not an act of the will to merit his blessing. It is a response to grace. You're building on the condition of grace with more grace and more grace. You don't build on the condition of grace by earning God's favor through obedience. Rather, grace produces obedience. Well, we can talk about that for about an hour, but uh, that's the foundation of condition. The second is the foundation of initiation. God initiated the rescue of Israel. And to continue the threefold metaphor, um, God initiated the condition of Adam, right? God initiated his creation. God initiated Israel's rescue, and in Christ, God has initiated the rescue of the New Testament church. As Paul said, while you were still yet in rebellion against him, Christ died for you, right? So do we come to him, or has he already come to us? Yeah, he already did. He already came. He advented, if you will. This is the foundation, again, because everything is built on it. For Israel, God says, I rescued you, now respond with obedience. Initiation and response. For the church, God says, I rescued you, now respond in faith. Now, that's a faith that's made evident through obedience, as the fruit of a living tree evidences its nature. But the faith itself is a gift. And the conditions are accomplished by Christ on our behalf. There is nothing to merit, only a gift to receive. 
any and all obedience that follows is supernatural fruit birthed out of grace, not meritorious effort. Thus, Christ gets all the glory, not only for our salvation, but also for our obedience because of the foundation of initiation. Well, again, uh, these are ideas that we could talk about uh, in depth and at length. Whole long chapters of books are written on them. I'm certainly not going to summarize them in a paragraph. But these things set the stage for the commands, the requirements which come next. And so if you're taking notes, we'll consider that by way of introduction. Number one, uh, command number one is about who we worship. You shall have no other gods before me. So from that precursor, we come to the command. Now, on the foundations of condition and initiation, we gladly obey this command. Look at what God has done. Consider Christ's accomplishments. And we can gladly say, no one else but God gets the place of supreme authority in our lives. Right? He birthed you out of the dust. He sustained your life in your rebellion to him. He sent his son 2,000 years ago to incarnate the flesh, to fulfill all the conditions of the law, to die a death that he didn't deserve but you did, to transfer your sin onto him, to give you his perfection by a mere admission of your lips and belief in your heart. Consider the conditions that Christ has met on your behalf of the law. And consider the initiation that God did all of this while he knew that you would be born and rebel against him. And he did all of that, met the conditions, initiated his loving relationship with you. And now the Holy Spirit has quickened your mind to recognize this great gift that Christ has given to us that we receive by simply saying, Oh Lord, you, yes, you are the King of glory. Now, is it too much to say, next, no one else has supreme authority over my life but the God who has met the conditions and initiated this great, loving, salvific relationship with me. Right? Logically, we say, yes. We can gladly obey this command based on the conditions and the initiation. Right? Okay. What does it mean, you shall have no other gods before me? It's a good two-word phrase. Exclusive obedience. I love that. I, it's not my own. Uh, I want to say the first place I read it was in a commentary by Phillips, uh, Robert Phillips, Dustin Phillips. Maybe it's Dustin Robert Phillips or Robert Dustin Phillips. I don't want to stand up here and be a liar, right? I didn't make up the phrase. It's really good. That's all I'm saying. Exclusive obedience. It means there is no craving, no, listen, fearful wanting, no thoughtful accomplishment, no tempting allure, 
that overrides obedience to God. You get that? No craving, no fearful wanting, no ambitious, thoughtful accomplishment, no tempting allurement that is to override absolute, exclusive obedience to God. Just a couple of quick examples, because if I don't pick up the pace, we won't finish. Out of fear of losing a relationship, you might be tempted to compromise a biblical command. Fearful wanting. Right? Out of a tempting allurement, you might be tempted to justify illicit, inappropriate behavior in the mind or with the hand. Tempting allurement. Out of thoughtful ambition, you might minimize the necessity of financial upright practice. In each case, the temptation is to obey the God of fear, the God of greed, the God of craving, instead of exclusive obedience to God. See, when God spoke these words to ancient Israel, polytheism was the name of the game. You worship this God for that, and you honor that God for that, and you honor that God for that. You want some good crops, or if you want you know, to have lots of babies, right? And you got all these different deities. So having lots of gods was normal. I'm going to honor this one for that, and I'm going to honor that one for that. Well, the polytheism of the ancient world is not so different from the temptation of our own day. Yes, there are other world religions, but in American casual evangelicalism, we are more enticed to a temptation of polytheism as opposed to, you know, a, a figurine of some sort, right? This is not common culturally to us. We don't look at a figurine and go, man, that figurine is going to help me out. All right, let me give it some bread. It's not common to us, but what is common to us is compromise out of fear. Compromise out of ambition. Buddy called me last night. He was making dinner with the family. Very random out of the blue. The kind of guy who, if he calls any time, I would answer, but he wouldn't normally just call. And it was a group call. And I jumped on it. There must be some reason. Me and a few other guys in my little circle of friends. Hey, this is out of the ordinary. What's up? He says, hey, I'm about to make a big financial decision. I'm just asking you guys to pray with me. Pray with me that the Lord will direct my steps. Pray with me that the Lord will give me wisdom. Pray with me that if this is the wrong call, then I'll know and I'll stop. Right? What is that? That's a man who does not want to worship the God of financial achievement or accomplishment. He wants to have exclusive obedience to his God. And he's saying, just in case I might be tempted to give in to the, to the God of financial, scrupulous activity that maybe it's wise, maybe it's not, maybe it's foolish, maybe it's too ambitious, maybe I'm being short-sighted, you know, maybe I'm, right, 
You say, and I want to have exclusive obedience to God. Pray with me that I not give in to being tempted to worship this God of achievement, accomplishment, ambition. You see? See, that's what's common to us today. Spurgeon says, whatever a man depends upon, whatever rules him, whatever governs his affections, whatever is the chief object of his delight, that is his God. It's good. Command one requires exclusive obedience to God in the face of countless temptations to obey something else. Now, the, the second part of this is this, the, the crux of it, this phrase, you shall have no other gods before me, before me. Now, this is interesting because what it actually means uh, is to imply in my presence. And we know that this happened. If you're with us in our journey through Ezekiel, uh, we know that Ezekiel had a vision. And in that vision, he was transported from Babylonian captivity um, in the spirit to the temple in Jerusalem. And what he saw were the priests of God who had set up foreign idols in the sanctuary of God. And this is what God means when he says, you should have no other gods before me meaning setting them up in the presence, if you will, of my face. That's the, that's the if you will, the, the, uh, the etymological underpinnings behind that phrase in the ancient Hebrew. You shall not set up other things and attempt to say, I honor Yahweh for this, and I honor this for that, and this for that, and this for that. No, no, no. It's not just exclusive obedience. It's don't try to mix them up. So Jesus made it also clear for the New Testament church to follow him is to lay your life on the cross of crucifixion every day, to deny all other impulse, temptation, or promise, and follow Jesus exclusively. All right, since Christ has met the conditions of wrath and reward, we can obey God exclusively out of love and gratitude, not out of fear or to merit God's favor. Since Christ initiated our salvation, we can obey him exclusively because we can trust that his desire for us is only for our good. Romans 8, 28, right? We know that God is working all things for the sake of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. We can obey him even when human logic might compel us to disobey. We can trust him. Right? Um, A.W. Pink says, The absolute security of believers was founded not on their strength, or the strength of their resolutions, nor their ability to persevere, but on the veracity of him who cannot lie. Now, what's he talking about? Well, he says, God says, I will keep you. Right? So him keeping you 
is not maintained on the strength of your commitments. Him keeping you is maintained on the strength of his word. And he cannot lie. So we obey not so that he'll keep us. He can't lie. He has you. So how do we obey? Well, we obey because we love him, because we trust him. No matter what might come our way, no matter what, how counterintuitive something might seem with the world around us, we can trust him. The absolute security of believers was founded not on the strength of their resolutions or their ability to persevere, but on the veracity of him who cannot lie. I love it. Thus, we cheerfully obey. That's good. You shall have no other gods before me. It's great. And in, in many ways, it's a challenge um, to teach that in, an, in a New Testament context. Secondly, command number two is about how we worship. Exclusive obedience to God, that's who we worship. Number two is how we worship. And this is a long one. I mean, this, this encompasses, you know, verses 4, 5, and 6. And so let's just read it again. You shall not make for yourself a carved image uh, or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Now, he didn't, he didn't say you shall not have a porcelain or a glass bird figurine in your room. I had a collection. I was really cool. He didn't say you shall not make these things. He said you shall not, verse 5, bow down to them. Which, of course, we recognize was an obvious temptation. Israel comes out of the land of Egypt. God parts the waters. The pillar of cloud separates them from the army of Pharaoh. He provides a miracle to sweeten bitter water that would otherwise make them sick in the desert. Manifests his presence on Mount Sinai, engulfing it with flame. And when he speaks, the mountain quakes and it's like blasts of trumpet. And Moses goes up to the mountain for six weeks. And he's just in this, this flame and smoke and trembling and they go, you know what? We should totally worship a calf. Right? We should totally do that. That's bonkers to us, right? Uh, so we can see how in the ancient world this was so easy to fall into, obviously. Obviously. I love it. I love the, the question, too. Moses comes down. He sees the calf. He goes, Aaron, what, what are you doing, man? And it's literally, it's, Aaron goes, threw the gold in there, and out came a calf. I don't know. It's like the, like, I, mean, I was like a 10-year-old little liar, and I was coming up with better stuff than that, you know? My parents could not get me to tell them the truth. And I had better stuff than, I threw the gold in there, and out came a calf. I don't know. And I've done so much research on that, trying to understand, like, the language. And the, no, 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 no. No, that's it. It was just like he panicked. Uh, through the goal. It was a miracle. 
You know, like the water and the, you know, the, the Pharaoh and the army, and it was kind of like, it was a miracle like that. This, this cow came out. What a knucklehead. All right, where are we? Verse 5, you should not bow down to them. All right, this was an obvious temptation. For I, the Lord, am a, ge- am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. So how we worship comes in uh, two parts. Number one, avoid idolatry. Number two, worship properly. Avoid idolatry, worship properly. Uh, Again, in the ancient world, images were used in worship because the people believed the deity was present in the image. And this is the kicker, okay? This is the key for us to even attempt to relate to this in our 21st century post-enlightenment era uh, world. Um, They wanted immediate access. That's the kicker, okay? And in the ancient world, they believed that the image gave them immediate access to the deity. And everything that God lays out for Israel and how they're to worship him is the complete opposite of that. No immediate access. You can't get close. (laughs) You can't touch the articles. Only the priests can, right? You're going to be out in the field. You won't see the tent. You won't be within eyeshot of the tabernacle. You won't see the pillar of fire forever. You'll be miles and miles away on your farm. You will not have immediate access to a deity through a thingamajig. And so this was the very countercultural way that God established worship of himself for a people who are very accustomed to the opposite. By banning images, God teaches that he is not to be approached this way. You cannot get close to me. You want to get close to a deity, let me tell you, you don't want to get close to me. You see it? God has chosen to reside with his chosen people. He has has chosen to give his presence, and it would be manifest among them by the pillar. But you don't approach me through an image. I have chosen to reside with you. Now, the first thing to appreciate, again, is just how unique this was when compared to the common practice in the ancient world. The reason why Israel so happily resulted, or or you might say um, uh, snapped back to worshiping a golden calf, is because that was what was normal to them. They had seen it in Egypt, they had obviously participated in it in Egypt, and it was all over the ancient world. So they did what was familiar, which is what we all do. When we panic, we go to what we know. You get lost, you're going to go to the the closest place you know. Like ancient Israel, following Jesus in obedience and worship will often conflict with all that is deemed normal to those around us. I love this quote from Marcus Aurelius. He's not a Christian. He's a Stoic. He makes a good point here. He says, The object of life is not to be on the side of the majority, but to escape finding oneself in the ranks 
of the insane. <laughs> it's like, hmm. Following Yahweh's commands would set Israel distinctly unique from the world around them. And so too it is when we follow Jesus. That which is normal to us outside of Christ and that which is normal to our neighbors who are far from Christ, um, we will be walking in a very different direction. God, knowing the hearts and the minds of men, also knows our weakness and our tendency to prioritize what is seen over what is unseen. What is seen what's over, over what's unseen. It was Jonathan Edwards who said, desire to be holy a thousand times more than to appear so. Why would he come with that? If not this natural tendency for us to prioritize what is seen over what is unseen. Look at the way we live. We live for this world when it's but a vapor and eternity is forever seen, unseen. Appearance is defended with veracity while integrity is sacrificed left and right. There is the social media persona and then there's the reality. You're right, you see this consistent, seen, unseen. The same goes in the worship of God. We have a tendency to prioritize what we can see and taste and touch. And God says, you're going to prioritize what is unseen. Because what is unseen is more real than what you can see. And if you want an example of this, of course, you can just look at the history of the church and how the veneration of supposed bones of the apostles or splinters from the cross of Calvary became objects of worship as the church slowly turned from fidelity to corruption between basically the 6th and the 15th centuries. The two things went hand in hand. And so in the Reformation era and in the Puritan era, sanctuaries were simplified, images were removed, were painted over, pulpits were prioritized, where the word was preached. So no images. This conviction means that many Christians cannot fully enjoy or embrace shows like The Chosen. Some can, some can't. Uh, the regulation stands today to not worship images. Do not mix it up. The image that you're looking at versus the God of all creation. The line, you know, where is the line? From a depiction that points the eye up to Christ and a depiction that insults him, that's one to work out with fear and trembling. Right? The third thing to appreciate about this regulation is God's wisdom regarding generational outcomes. Generational outcomes. Uh, and this is the meaning of the phrase where he says, I will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children. It's like, man, that seems pretty messed up. Well, idolatry in Israel became a generational plague that was not easily shaken. Now, if you read 1 Samuel through, like, it, it's, a, it's an epic novel. I mean, just read it from beginning to end like an incredible story. And uh, what you'll find is that under the reign of King Saul, Israel's first king, and then King David, um, idolatry was completely expunged from the nation. It just wasn't happening. It wasn't permitted. It was outlawed. It was put away. Saul, for all of his faults, he had put out all the 
people who were practicing these things. There were no temples. There were no high places, as they are called. There were no shrines. Man, it was exclusive obedience to God. No idols before me. And then Solomon, in all of his wisdom, he married all these foreign women, making all these different alliances with foreign nations. And to maintain those alliances, he allowed them to worship their gods. And over time, just as God promised, the idols of the foreign wives will draw your heart away from me. So too, we recognize, and we can read it clearly, Solomon's heart, it says it specifically, the narrators, his heart was drawn away from the worship of God, chasing after the worship of these idols. And from that point forward, they could never shake it. You would have occasional spurts where a, a decent king would come into power and he would, he would put a stop to all this. But in many cases, there were just too many shrines set up. The high places weren't all torn down. There's too many of them. They're everywhere. Nobody's worshiping, but the places of worship are still there. And so the next generation comes around, and guess where they go? Right back to those high places and worship their idols on those locations. It was like a plague that they could not shake. And so when God says, I will visit this on the children for generations, it's less a threat to punish the children for the father's indiscretion and more a wisdom that was simply proved. In fact, Ezekiel and Jeremiah both say, no more shall you say, our dads blew it, so we're eating sour grapes. Mm -mm. God says, I'll deal with each generation on their own merit. I'll deal with each person individually. You can't blame your dad. He might have been a loser. I'm sorry. Life is broken, genuinely, right? We live in a fallen world. There's all kinds of sin that comes into our lives. But I'll deal with you based on one thing, right? Your generation. And so instead of images and idolatry, God's people are to worship him properly. So avoid idolatry and worship him properly. And how is that described? Well, it's there at the end of verse 6. God says, I show love, steadfast love to thousands of those, which is to say thousands of generations. That's the implication. Uh, of those who love me and keep my commands. So what's proper worship? Love and obey. It's the simple key. It, it's, not the, it's not different from what Jesus told the woman at the well. Those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. Or you might say in love and obedience. Same idea. Well, in this, the third command kind of comes into focus, which is to treat God's name with reverence uh, and fear. And that's where we come, number three, uh, to reverence in worship. Who we worship, how we worship, reverence in worship. Uh, and for this, I turn us to uh, one of the great passages of the Bible, Hebrews chapter 12. I'll quote it for you uh, for the sake of time. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. <laughs> Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. I've, um, I, I keep 
I keep putting Hebrews off. I don't know if you know this, but every time we're in between books, on a Wednesday or on a Sunday, I always go, I wonder if it's time for Hebrews, you know? Because it's like this, it's like this rich steak. And um, it's, like, uh, it's like, like rich Japanese Wagyu. And you know, like you don't want to like buy like an A5 Wagyu steak and then kind of like ruin it by cooking it poorly. That's how I feel about the book of Hebrews. It's like this, uh, it's rich, man, and I, I don't want to botch it. So you know what? Give me another year or two behind the pulpit before I even attempt it. Man, I want to get it right. <sighs> no, all right, we don't have time. You might rightly say that this regulation about worship uh, is less about speech and more about approach. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. It's less about speech and more about approach. Speech is just the evidence of your approach. It's just the overflow of what's in your heart, Jesus said. This is about approach. This is about your heart's demeanor toward God. So we are to approach God in reverence and in awe. The imagery of God as a raging fire speaks of his holiness and the reverent fear with which we must always treat him. You never find a prophet in the Old Testament suddenly being finding themselves in the presence of God and them going, what's up, bro? Right? You don't. They fall on their face. Right? There is just never an occasion where we should go, dude, Jesus, God, bro, like, I love you, man, and like, I'm looking forward to being up with you in the clouds for eternity with my harp and stuff, dude. So like, bless this service. I went to Bible college in California, and there was a lot of that, you know? He's our friend, he calls us friend, and we boldly approach the throne of grace, but man, I can't help but when I close my eyes and I imagine that I'm about to ascend to the throne room of heaven with these prayers from my heart, I cannot imagine anything less than at least beginning with this just gracious Father in heaven. (laughs) Thank you, you know? Thank you for hearing me. Always with reverence. Even when the threat of his wrath has been removed by the cross of Christ, as C.S. Lewis puts it in the Chronicles of Narnia, he is not a tame God. He is always dangerous. He is a fearful and terrible thing, Hebrews tells us, to fall into the hands of God. And this is good. This is about his holiness. His holiness is speaking to his otherness. He is not like us. He is the creator and we are the creature. So come to him with reverence. And then just be that much more overjoyed when he scoops us up like a toddler, you know? Just that much sweeter when we come to him in reverence and that's how he treats us. In reverence and then in awe, as creatures before the creator, we must tremble with fear. And to add to that awe is thanksgiving, right? So we come back to the verse from Hebrews 12. 
Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom and thus offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. There's a gratitude that accompanies awe. Philip says, we are sinners redeemed by the hand of mercy, enemies who are reconciled by love, rebels who are made children and heirs of God's eternal kingdom. Realizing this must surely draw forth gratitude from our hearts for the gifts we have not deserved. So let us be grateful, not wishing for the world and stirring his jealousy. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, not forgetting that this is the holy God of heaven, a consuming fire. Now I'm a few minutes late. I want to read to you a couple of quotes from a great book. Um, and then we'll spend the balance of our time interceding. Um, the first one is page 10 of uh, The Attributes of God by Arthur Pink. Quoting Genesis 1.1, he says, In the beginning, God. There was a time, if time it could be called, when God, in the unity of his nature, dwelt all alone. In the beginning, God. There was no heaven where his glory is now partially manifest. There was no earth to engage his attention. There were no angels to hymn his praises. No universe to be upheld by the word of his power. There was nothing, no one but God. And that, not for a day, a year, or an age, but from everlasting. During a past eternity, God was alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, in need of nothing. Had a universe, had angels, had human beings been necessary to him in any way, they also had been called into existence from all eternity. The creating of them when he did adding, added nothing to God, essentially. He changes not. Therefore, his essential glory can be neither augmented nor diminished. In the beginning, God. Okay, and then from verse uh, from chapter, uh, page forty four, certain conditions were set before the mediator. He, Jesus, was made. He was to be made in the likeness of sin's flesh. He was to magnify the law and make it honorable. He was to bear all the sins of all God's people in his own body on the tree. He was to make full atonement for them. He was to endure the outpoured wrath of God. He was to die and be buried. On the fulfillment of those conditions, he was promised a reward. 
He was to be the firstborn among many brethren. He was to have a people who should share his glory. Blessed be his name forever. He fulfilled those conditions. And because he did so, the Father stands pledged on solemn oath, listen to this, to preserve through time and bless throughout eternity every one of those for whom his incarnate Son mediated. Because he took their place, they now share his. His righteousness is theirs. His standing before God is theirs. His life is theirs. There is not a single condition for them to meet, not a single responsibility for them to discharge in order to attain attain their eternal bliss. By one offering, he has perfected forever them that are set apart. Friends, uh, I offer those closing quotes just to say we don't need a stirring melody to be drawn into worship of a holy God, right? We don't need a pulsating beat or a catchy hook. We need only to read of um, the miraculous kind and overwhelming gifts that God has given to us in Christ. And we find ourselves caught up in the reverent, grateful, exclusive worship of the one true and living God. Amen? Yeah. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time. And for your word, and Lord, forgive my tardiness. Lord, thank you for um, your kindness to us and the spirit that draws us and sanctifies us. Here now are a uh, few minutes of uh, prayerful intercession for our nation and for our, um, our community and uh, for your glory to be made manifest among us. We love you in Christ's name.